Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have on as our guest, Landis Behar. Landis is a New York State licensed mental health counselor and a licensed professional counselor in the state of Georgia. She earned her master's degrees in counseling psychology and mental health counseling from Columbia University. In 2018, she founded IELTALK, Consultation and Therapy, a New York-based therapy and coaching practice devoted to supporting clients who find themselves stressed out as they plan their wedding, a time in life which seems glamorous and euphoric on the outside, but can actually bring up very real stress mood changes, anxiety, and relationship family strain for so many. For her innovative work in this area, Landis has been quoted as an expert source in numerous media publications, including Time Magazine, The New York Times, Brides, Bustle, Vox, The New York Post, and several others. She has also served as a mental health and relationship expert on the Brides Media Review Board. She now manages IELTS Talk remotely from Atlanta, Georgia, where she lives with her husband and two boys. Today, we talk about the clinical work she does with engaged and newly married couples. Welcome, Landis. Nice to see you. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. So what your specialty is, is you specialize in wedding therapy. And I really want to talk about it because it's so unique. And I'm sure there's a lot to talk about. Yes, it's my favorite topic. And I'm excited to be talking to you about it today. So maybe should we start off by asking you how you became interested in this? Yes, I'd love to talk about that. I went to school to become a licensed mental health counselor. I studied in New York at Columbia, and I graduated and was working a few years in the field and didn't really know that this was something I'd like to specialize in. I don't think it was necessarily an option that I knew was available to me, and it was more so just years of kind of being in practice in the first few years and seeing what I was kind of gravitating towards. It was definitely working with couples, working with individuals on relationships, working with family issues, life transitions, that sort of thing. I was working in community work. So I was working with everyone, every every kind of condition and presenting issue under the sun. But I was really kind of honing in on some specific things that I like to be working with. Then meanwhile, outside of my personal life, I was in my mid-20s and seemed to be a time where everyone around me was getting married. I later followed suit. I was just becoming intimately familiar with the process of planning a wedding and what that looks like in the last 10 years. The landscape of planning a wedding is very different than it was generations past. So I was having my own experience with that. And truthfully, I actually loved planning my own wedding. I thought it was really fun. It was kind of using a creative side of myself. And I'm blessed to have great family and great in-laws. Having said all of that, it was very stressful. And I started to notice how just being in this space was putting pressure on things that I I didn't know were going to have pressure on them. It was putting pressure on family relationships. It was There was a lot of expectations that I was just confronted with in a way I wasn't expecting. So anyways, I think all of those things sort of primed me for like that ultimate aha origin story moment, which was about a year and a half after I got married and everything was said and done, all the things had worked themselves out. And was later in the dress salon supporting my sister-in-law 
while she was getting married and picking her dress. And it was her and her mother, so it was my mother-in-law. And the two of them got in like a little argument over a comment that my mom, my mother-in-law made about the dress. And that's not typical for them. They have like a funny banter. I've been shopping with them a million times, you know, and so I, I helped them smooth things over. I'm a family therapist. I couldn't, you know, le- check that at the door. And, you know, we came to, to an agreement and helped them understand each other's perspectives and all those things. And then my mother-in-law sort of joked, like, good thing we brought the therapist with us. You should be a wedding therapist. And I said, wait, is that a thing? And it was just from that moment. It was really one of those like quintessential aha moments where I was like, it should be a thing because it's all the things that bring people into therapy at other points in their lives. They're all kind of converging in this like year-ish span when you're also going through this major identity shift from single to married, which is essentially this your first kind of new family of creation unit. And after that, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And the wheels were in motion after that. So I always like when I when I think about, I think about this with my specialties, themes that often come up. Maybe it would be helpful to talk about from the beginning stages of when you might see somebody all the way through the planning, the wedding itself, the aftermath. What are those themes that you tend to see? Yeah, theme is a perfect word to describe it because one thing I like about doing this work is there's no two same presentations. Everybody kind of experiences this differently, but there definitely are themes that kind of run through. So I'd say that people, and people come to me at different stages of their planning. So there's some people who come like when they know they're about to get engaged. (laughs) And then there's some people who come like a month before the wedding and they're like, it's awful. So I would say that like earlier themes that get presented are like, I know this is going to be stressful because I have strained dynamics with my family already. I know this is going to be hard. I need help. And then there's like the flip side of that coin, which is I did not expect to have so much stress with my family members planning this thing, but everybody has an opinion about what I should be doing. So there's kind of that family member strain. There's also a lot of couples today we're seeing more and more than we have in previous generations, intercultural, interfaith, interracial couples. They're coming in with very different lived experiences, very different worldviews. And maybe they've done a lot of work on their dynamic, but this is a whole family affair. So you're bringing in the families who don't, haven't done all of that work and don't really understand what's going on on the other side. And I think the sheer amount of like expectations and opinions that you're just not prepared for people to have. I think that the modern day person who's getting married now gets a message about weddings that it's all about you and it's all about your couple and it's very sort of individualistic. Meanwhile, previous generations or other cultures view it as this is something for the family. Previous generations, it was common that parents planned it for them and the couple just showed up. And so that tension where it's not that anymore, but people don't know that or expect that or have different expectations converging all together is another thing. I think throughout the process, you find just these power dynamics that come up where people are not sure who should have the last say in the creative decisions and things like that. Some people think it's the parents. Some people think it's whoever's paying. Some people just think it's the bride, the couple, whatever. And so that mismatch is something that kind of plays out in the middle there. Yeah. And I think what I'm stating the obvious, but it's not just about the wedding. No, wedding is almost like the foray into a bigger family dynamic. Absolutely. And I think I should say what the themes are not. They are very rarely about 
the table arrangements, the centerpieces, or the color scheme, or what shoes you wear. Sometimes those are the inciting incidents, but it almost always comes down to the stuff underneath, communication stuff, conflict resolution stuff, family of origin stuff, life transition stuff, all bigger picture things. And this is just kind of what lights the stuff on fire and makes it unavoidable. And maybe also comes up, and we'll get to this, but am I making the right choice? Yes. That is something that comes up. I always say that the engagement period is a liminal phase, right? It's like neither here nor there, but kind of in the middle. And so a big thing that comes up is, because I do a lot of couples counseling, I do some kind of more traditional premarital counseling too, the arguments that you have when you're engaged get magnified more so than when you're married or when you're dating, right? I take like boyfriend, husband, fiance leaves his shoes in the middle of the floor, you know, and doesn't put them away. When you're dating, it's like, oh, I'm, you know, whatever, this guy does this. When you're married, it's like, okay, well, I'm not going to get divorced over this. When you're engaged, it's like the shoes are in the middle of the floor again. Is this what I'm signing up for for the rest of my life? And so everything kind of gets magnified. And you can see how that's a really simplified example. But this is how we argued. This is what we said. This is what, you know, that sort of thing. And, and, and you start to fear about the decision you're making. And that's what's reflected in that life transition part of it. Sorry, I derailed you from talking about the timeline of themes that come up. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. There's so much to talk about. So the power piece is is a big one, right? Who are the stakeholders? Who has power decisions? Who doesn't? Who feels powerless? Who pe- feels powerful? Who is this wedding for? How do we compromise? How do we prioritize? How do we not lose sight of what's important? The marriage, the couple, the partnership that can be easily lost sight of in the context of a big, beautiful, fun wedding. What are our expectations, right? What kind of expectations are placed onto us? The expectation to be happy all the time because you're about to get married. That's a big one for people. If we have an argument, are we wrong for each other? If I'm fighting with my parents, what's wrong with me because this is supposed to be the happiest time of my life and they're throwing me this big, lavish party? What's wrong with me that I could pick a fight with them? The expectation to be super unique and special and bespoke, that's a big one that was not one 10 years ago. There's a lot of pressure that social media plays in the decision-making of it all because you are having so many visual imprints of what can be cool or special about a wedding and you want to make yours the same or unique or whatever. You want to meet that expectation. The amount of imprints that you're getting on either your inspiration, how to be different, how to be special, all of that is playing an invisible mental role in planning this. And so the the list just doesn't end of ways that you can feel pressure. And then it also kind of plays into maybe some things that you've struggled with at other times in your life, right? We see a lot of themes of perfectionism, of people-pleasing play out in the wedding planning space. I get really passionate about the topic of the use of the word bridezilla and how that can come in to affect how women and brides show up and talk to people around them because there's a lot of pressure to not be the bridezilla and there's a lot of misrepresentation of what a bridezilla is. The list is extensive. I do like how you brought in, though, also the cultural piece of it, too, and the blending of families and the wedding oftentimes being the first time that there's this blending. It's not just the couple anymore. Absolutely. It's so interesting because it's definitely not the last time that it's going to play out and that a couple needs to kind of face it. 
A lot of times it's the first time that you have to do it on a family level. You've done a little bit of that work already as an interfaith or interracial or intercultural couple, but you're seeing how the wider kind of frame gets challenged by that. When it comes to weddings specifically, there are some cultures who are, weddings are a really, really, really big deal. If you don't know about the history or the customs or whatever, you could end up like showing up to your wedding and feeling like an outsider. And that is a feeling that plays out throughout the planning too. And all of this is relevant because it's a good time to talk about it. It's coming up in this really intense way. I view it as a time to talk about important things. You know, another theme that I often think about, you think about these bridal boot camps for getting in shape and looking your best for the wedding. And Mm -hmm. so I'm curious about the theme of body image and how that often comes up, especially in somebody who might have a history of eating disorder. So I have a lot of mostly brides, not exclusively, but brides who will come in and there's kind of two presentations of that. There'll be the folks who come in and they'll talk about how a previous eating disorder is being reactivated, right? Because there's a lot of attention. There's a lot of stress. People feel really entitled. It's like similar to pregnancy where people feel really entitled to make comments about people's body and physical appearance during the wedding. So that comes up really strongly, right? And then there's also, and this can impact that type of client as well, but there's also such an emphasis. We have like all these slogans, like shedding for the wedding, things like that, which are really problematic um, for anyone who's experienced any kind of diagnosed eating disorder, but also people who struggle with disordered eating or have that in their family. So it can be stressful on the whole family, right? And then there's also just a lot of opportunities where you are in a dress and there's a lot of eyeballs on you and there's a lot of people commenting about, again, the fit. My origin story plays a role here. My sister-in-law and her mom, they're always able to like talk or joke or whatever. They have that relationship. But when you're in this moment, trying on this most important garment, those things hit differently. Things are really charged. Things are really loaded. Everything hits a little louder, even for somebody who doesn't have a history of that, let alone our folks who do have a history of disordered eating or eating disorders. And so there's a lot of work and a lot of strain that comes in with something like that. What about people who have history of trauma and trauma in their family and loss and grief? It's complicated. Absolutely. I would say like a couple of primary experiences that we see quite often are death and loss of a significant member of the family, whether that is decades old loss or really recent loss. If somebody is ill, sometimes that fits in that ambiguous loss category where they can't maybe show up to the wedding in the way that you expected them to, right? Maybe there's a dad who physically can't do a first dance or walk somebody down the aisle. Maybe there's a dad who is no longer with us and can't play that role. Maybe there's a mom who can't go to the wedding dress appointment, is no longer there either because she passed away or because she can't physically be there or there's some sort of ambiguous loss or illness or something that's causing that. So it plays out for people during the planning, right? Because they can't be part of those special moments that you always talked about. And then it plays out at the wedding itself, right? Because they can't be part of those special moments that you associate with the classic traditional wedding. One thing is children of divorced families. That's something that I have seen played out in a really interesting and hard way where you might have a family who the divorce is decades old at this point, maybe happened when the person who's getting married was a young child and 
the family has sort of organized itself around the divorce. They know which holidays are spent with who. They know which vacations go with who. They know who they can talk to about this. And they've already adjusted to their new spouses and everything. And then the wedding kicks all of that up again because all of a sudden we can't keep those things separate. We're all expected to be here. And we got to figure out the table arrangements and we got to figure out who's making the speech. Is it stepdad? Is it dad? Who's spending money on this? Who's hosting this event, right? So many layers there. I know that you had an interesting guest on the podcast who specializes in estrangements. And I was really fascinated about that because it's something that comes up too with weddings. Is this an opportunity to reconnect? What will it look like if we don't reconnect and the person's not there? What will people think? How will I feel? That comes up really strongly. We will all meet together and we can do another podcast episode with Josh. Yes, I would love that. I thought that was like one of my favorites that I was listening to. I was like, oh, I got to meet this guy. He's got so much insight to stuff that we talk about a lot. And then I think the last thing that can be traumatic on families and plays out in the wedding is addiction. So another can be another ambiguous loss where the person can't show up in a dependable or reliable way. And in some cases, we have to debate. And that can be through the planning process, but also unpredictability on the day. And how do we manage for that or support somebody in that? So we have a lot of ways that these family systems dysfunction can come up, even if it's been functioning fine in so many other realms of life, the wedding will put a spotlight on things. And most people don't get married more than once, at least when they're coming to see me and planning this big kind of wedding that usually puts the spotlight on you. There's no precedent for how we deal with this. And we're not going to get a chance to do it over. You know, if, if we have something flare up, you know, at the wedding, we'll just, you know, make it up at the next one. That's not how it works. What sort of things do you see post-wedding? And can they continue to see you after they're all done with the wedding and like years later. So those are my two last questions. Yeah, I think after the wedding, this is very real. It's like wedding regret. We do have a lot of wedding regret, whether it was that somebody acted inappropriately and there was no way to kind of solve for that in advance, whether it was something didn't go the way that you expected and we have to kind of acknowledge the grief that came with that. This happened a lot in COVID. I didn't even talk about how the practice and our conversations were impacted with COVID loss and how weddings look different during COVID. So we do a lot of processing. It's a little bit of grief work, honestly, sometimes if things don't go the way that we expected. A lot of times people do say it was the best day of our lives and a lot of the stuff didn't matter, but that's not true for every case and we still support people after the fact. Working together beyond the wedding, it depends on what kind of capacity you are working with us. So we do a lot of short-term coaching where we do kind of end our relationship around the ending of the wedding. We do a, a follow-up session or two. And then if you want some more ongoing support, but you're in another state and you kind of want something more ongoing, then that would be therapy and we'd refer you to somebody local to your state. But then we do have a handful of our therapy clients who do become long-term clients. And I have, you know, I started the practice in 2018 and I have some folks who got married and now are having kids and we're kind of going through those life stages together too. So that's, I think both are equally rewarding for me. I like the long-term work, but I also like helping people through a stressful time. And I think a lot of people like our practice because they might be feeling a lot of the stress during the time, but feel like, oh, well, I don't want to reach out for therapy. Like I'll just get over it. When the wedding's over, this will all be done. I don't want to like commit to that. And so I think that's where like short-term counseling works really well for people who need us in that way. Well, before we end, I always ask my guests any words of wisdom to leave the listener with. I thought this was so fun. I'm not getting married right now, but it's 
Weddings seem kind of simplistic in a way, but it's complex and there's so much that gets unearthed and it's just so rich in terms of work that you could do with somebody around this. Totally. And like there's never a shortage of issues that can come up and ways that they intersect with other things and get put on display. And I really like uncovering that kind of stuff. So it works well for me. And it is fun to talk about. I get really excited about it. I would say that some words to leave listeners with. I think my favorite thing that I always come back to is that concept of a liminal phase, right? It is inherently temporary. There's probably exceptions to this rule, but nobody's engaged forever. Nobody's planning a wedding forever. So let's accept all parts of that. Meaning if it's stressful, it's not going to last forever. If it's great, let's try to be as present as possible and lean into the parts that are great. And to that part, you can pick and choose the parts that you like and leave the rest aside. You do not have to wholly, fully love every part of this process for this to be some level of enjoyable for you. And more importantly, you don't have to love every part of it to be doing it right. It is perfectly fine to love some parts and not like others, and you're not doing it wrong and there's nothing wrong with you. And you can just hold those two truths. That's a good one to end with. Do you want to suggest any reading for the listener? If you're interested in some of these psychological, emotional dynamics, if that's like, if you're kind of curious in that way, I like the book, The Conscious Bride. And if you are more into like, how do I deal with some of these things? I like The Practical Wedding, which is a book, but also kind of like a website for like helpful inspiration and conversation and things like that. And then I would say in our website, every article that we've been quoted in or weighed in on is linked on our website and our Instagram. And so we have a lot of good nuggets of information there. I will make sure your website will be the first one on there. Cool. Uh, And thank you for being on. Thank you for having me and to your husband for finding us. For the listener, I was telling Landis that my husband sent me a link to your article. What, I don't know what, I, I forget what article it was. I forgot like, too. You gotta mentioned have, you've got to have her on your podcast. This is a great one. I'm so glad we connected. Thank you for having me. Yeah. All right. Well, take care. Thanks. You too. This has been Mind Stories with me, Josephine McNary of Cal Psychiatry. With online psychiatry in California and 13 offices throughout Southern California and the Bay Area, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, ADHD, anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com and let us help you get back to your true self. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories, and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.